over again, I'm not sure I would teach what I'm about to teach, like the way I'm going to, I hope it's not, I hope it's, I hope it's productive. I hope it actually will help where we're going to be next week, but it didn't exactly maybe play out like I thought I was hoping for. I guess we'll see. But in Isaiah chapter, uh, the section we're doing, the second half of Isaiah, chapters 40 to 66, one of the realizations I had this week, or awarenesses that I had, is in my mind, I've already said in a lot of ways, Isaiah is like a mini Bible. Uh, 66 chapters versus 66 books of the Bible. Uh, The first 39 chapters kind of correspond to the Old Testament. The last 27 chapters kind of correspond to the New Testament. And especially where we're at this morning, where we're on the verge of being, chapter 54, it's, it's almost overwhelming. It's, uh, I feel like I'm swimming on the deep end, and I'm not sure I have any business being there. It's hard to, I'm not touching bottom. It's kind of hard even how to approach it, how to get my mind around it. Isaiah is so much like the Bible, I, I really believe, I've never quite had a sense like this with other books, though I'm sure it is true with every book of the Bible. But with Isaiah, I feel like if God had only given the church, had only given his people Isaiah, I would have more than enough to keep myself busy for a lifetime trying to grasp different threads and different aspects of meaning that are woven all through the book. And we are just scratching the surface. I'm more convinced of that on the cusp of chapter 54 than I've ever been convinced uh, in any other book I've ever taught. So last week, two weeks ago, for two weeks, we've done chapter 48. And in those two weeks in chapter 48, there's a one-word summary, especially out of last week. The one thing, if you didn't get anything else out of chapter 48 last week, the one word that you were meant to get was what word? And everybody's afraid to say the word because if you're wrong, it's like, I only needed... I had one job to remember one word, and I got that word wrong. What it? Listen. Listen's a great word, but you weren't listening. That's true. Listen is used ten times. So that's the word that's used probably most often in chapter 48. The Lord keeps saying, listen, listen, hear this. So that's a, that's a good word, but it's the word I started off with. It's not behold either. Behold's a great word in Isaiah chapters 40 to 66 because that's a, that's a whole nother theme in Isaiah. Like if you just look at all the beholds in Isaiah, you will get this incredible message. But behold, isn't it either? Providence is the word. We talked a little bit. We started off with talking about this concept of providence. And providence can be defined by one sentence, four words. I gave you a long definition of providence uh, out of the ology book, but in the ology book, the heading is four simple words. God's providence means what? God is in control. So for two weeks, especially last week, we were talking God is in control. Uh, he, he was in control in Isaiah's day. He is no less in control in our day. He's no less in control of the nation's that exists today, of your life, of my life. God's control isn't over just the big picture. God is in control over the most minute 
what seem like insignificant things, God is in control. That is meant to arouse great encouragement to those that know this God who has that kind of power and that kind of knowledge who know him by the forgiveness of his son, that God is in control. And that's the basis of the promise in Romans 8.28. I know as a believer, all things work together for good to those who love God, who are the called according to his purpose. I know that because God is in control. That's, that's the basis. So... A second definition, this is from Tyndale's Bible Dictionary, it's going to kind of weave together two things. It's going to talk a little bit about God's providence, and it's going to talk a lot about Isaiah. This is in the entry for Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, what should I know, according to Tyndale Bible Dictionary. There's probably, I don't remember how many paragraphs now, there were probably five or six. I'm just going to give you one of those paragraphs. It reads like this. Throughout the book of Isaiah... God is pictured as the all-powerful creator, the sovereign one seated on a throne, high and exalted, the king, the Lord Almighty. He controls the armies of the earth and removes rulers as he wills. Before him, nations are but a drop in the bucket, and compared with him, all idols are worthless and without power. This is the God who shows his fury to his foes, and his love to his servants. That's a God who is in control. Isaiah, the reason why I picked, uh, I wanted to do Isaiah, we'd been in the New Testament for a while on Sunday mornings. Uh, I don't want to always remain exclusively in the New Testament. Uh, I wanted to do Isaiah 40 to 66. I knew it was a big picture of God. And I think the church needs a big picture of God. I think in my life, I need to know how some better idea just how big God is, just how much control he has. What I want you to pay particular attention to is that last sentence. This is the God who shows his fury to his foes and his love to his servants. That's what we saw played out in Isaiah chapters 46, 47, and 48, where we were the last two weeks, chapter 48. God is in control. He shows his fury to his foes. He shows his love to his servants. Real brief summary of where we were for two weeks. In Isaiah chapter 48, it's divided into two halves. The first half, verses 1 to 11, we have juxtaposed Jacob's hypocrisy, Jacob's treachery versus the Lord's covenant faithfulness. In this relationship where God chose Israel to be a nation above all other nations, his own treasured possession, what does that relationship look like? Well, Israel is treacherous, they're deceitful, they're idolatrous, they're, they worship God hypocritically. But in that same relationship, the Lord is faithful, he's merciful, he tells them what he's going to do to them every step of the way, including his chastisement, including his judgment. It shouldn't take them by surprise. He's told them he was going to do this. When Israel received the law on Mount Sinai, they were proclaimed, they were told both the blessings of God and the cursings of God. If you walk in my ways, this is what you will experience. If you disregard my ways, this is what you'll experience. A modern sentiment among Jewish people today is they find it hard to believe, take seriously or literally the God of Scripture because life has been so difficult for them. 
I think one of the things I got when I went to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. a good number of years ago, a common refrain was, how could God love us? How could God really be that real? How could he be that good in light of all the suffering we've experienced as a people? And part of the answer to that is, that's exactly what God said he was going to do when you disregard him, when you're idolatrous, when you worship me treacherously and hypocritically. I'm keeping my word in the relationship. That was the first 11 verses. Then the second half of the chapter, verses 12 to 22, the Lord assures Israel of Babylon's demise and of their own release and return from exile. He's going to show his fury to Babylon... He's going to show his love to Israel. And he makes it very clear, it is for my sake I do this. It's not because you've decided to clean up your act. It's not because you decided to try harder. It's not because you dug deep. It's not because God refined Israel and found a little bit of goodness that he nurtured into this wonderful flourishing plant. It is only because of God's own namesake that he will keep his promise to Israel, and they will be a changed people. It's because of what God does, not because of what they do, not because of the way they cooperate with God. It's because God will intervene and create a change of grace that transforms that nation of Israel. How does Israel's deliverance come about? I have in the word parentheses salvation. I could have the word redemption in there. One of the things you need to understand is that the Bible uses those words to refer to different things. As a church, as Christians, when we hear the word salvation, we generally think of forgiveness of sins, which is quite appropriate and it's most important. But sometimes the Bible uses the word salvation and redemption and deliverance. And it's not talking about spiritual deliverance. It's talking about physical deliverance. The Lord said, I redeemed my people out of Egypt. That doesn't mean he forgave all of their sins. It does mean that he delivered them from slavery in Egypt. Most of those Hebrews perished in a wilderness in disobedience and unbelief. But they were redeemed out of Egypt. That's a physical redemption, not a spiritual. But in this sense, when the Lord assures Israel of their release and return, uh, what does that deliverance look like? How does it transpire? There are two ways to look at it. In the short term, the answer would be Cyrus the Great, who is a Persian, who in 538 will issue an edict allowing Israel to return to their homeland, who will allow them to return to Jerusalem, who will allow them to rebuild the walls and rebuild the temple. The Lord's promise of deliverance is in the short term fulfilled by a man named Cyrus the Great. But in the long term, this deliverance is accomplished by the servant of the Lord. And in the long term, in the most significant sense, of which Cyrus is merely just a type going back to some of Rich's imagery downstairs in Sunday school, Cyrus is a shadow. Cyrus is kind of a a precursor. He's kind of an example. You want some idea of what deliverance looks like? Look at Cyrus. But if you think that God gave his message to Isaiah so we'd learn about Cyrus, you've missed the point. Because Cyrus, though he's chosen of the Lord, Cyrus, though he's loved by God, 
Cyrus, though he's the Lord's anointed, Isaiah is not about Cyrus. Cyrus merely pictures the servant of the Lord who will bring deliverance from sin, death, and hell, as well as deliver Israel from their oppressors. The Lord's servant will do everything Cyrus did and so much more because his character is so much greater. So that's kind of the initial setup of where we're going. All of God's purposes of judgment and redemption depend or hinge on this servant's success, a substitute servant. He stands in for Israel. Israel was supposed to be the servant of the Lord. Israel was supposed to take the gospel to the nations. Israel was to be the light of the world. But Israel was deaf, dumb, and blind. And so the Lord provides a substitute servant, Jesus Christ, the Son. This substitute servant will execute God's purposes of judgment and God's purposes of redemption. It all hinges on his success. If this servant is not successful, then what God promised Abraham will fail. God promised Abraham, and you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. What God promised David will fail. You will have a son that reigns on the throne forever, a kingdom which will know no end. God promised Abraham those things. He promised David those things. He's promised the church things. He's promised Israel the nation things. If this servant fails, all God's promises, what they say in the Old Testament, is those words fall to the ground. Because a promise is only as good as how much control you have. I can promise you, you'll be out of here by noon. But I can't, there's a lot of things I really have no control over. I can promise you, you'll enjoy, you can go eat your lunch afterward. But I really, I have no control over your health. I have really no control over what will transpire the moment you step foot outside our door. Or even while we're here. A promise is only as good as the character of the one delivering the promise. It, it is dependent on how much or how little control I have. God's made all these promises, and they depend on the success of the Son who will see to it that all God's purposes of judgment will succeed. All God's purposes of salvation will succeed. Babylon will meet its demise. Israel will be released. Because of God who is in control and the success of this servant. Paul puts it this way to the Corinthians. For every one of God's promises is yes in him. Everything that God has ever promised is yes because of Christ. Because he completely succeeded in every assignment that was given him by the Father. Uh, I don't know if this is where Rich was going and... And it just, this wasn't really in my notes, but it, one of the thoughts that Rich gave was, I, it struck me as particularly, my mind kind of grasped it, and I was fascinated by this thought. You know, when he was talking about exchanges, uh, you give one thing of value in exchange for another thing of value, and he was talking about how Christ gave his life in exchange for my life, and the value exchange. And, and I know what I got was of infinitesimal value. You can place no limit on that value. But what did Christ get in that exchange? Because my life isn't worth 
anything compared to his life. And I was fascinated by that, and I, I realize as I'm thinking that through and, and listening to where Rich is going, he's moving other directions because he covered a lot of material in a short amount of time. What Christ got out of that was the pleasure of his Father. Christ gave his life what he got out of that exchange. He did get all those that the Father had given to him, but what he, why he did what he did was out of obedience to his father and to receive his father's pleasure. That's the highest reason why we do anything. That our father, our creator, our God would be pleased. And that's sufficient. So we have that. Every one of God's promises is yes in him. This is the same drama that's played out in Revelation chapter 5, which I've talked about in times past. I don't want to belabor the point if it's somewhat fresh in your mind. I don't remember when the last time was that I talked about it. But in Revelation chapter 5, uh, the idea is John is caught up. Uh, John the Apostle is the only one remaining. The others have all died, presumably, by this point. John is caught up into heaven. And in Revelation chapter 4, he sees this terrific throne room of heaven. And, and, and those that are in heaven are worshiping God. And there's these... these songs and choruses of praise. And then in Revelation chapter 5, I probably should read it to you so I get it right. Revelation chapter 5, it says, Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. I also also saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? This one, the God in his right hand, and these are images. This God in his right hand has a scroll written front and back. There's no empty space on this scroll. Sealed with seven, uh, uh, the scroll is sealed with seven seals. Who is worthy to open the scroll? And a search is made, and no one is found worthy to open the scroll. Not Isaiah the prophet. Not any one of the twelve apostles, not John the Baptist, of whom no one, no prophet has been born greater of man than John the Baptist, not Moses, not Abraham. Pick your, pick your Old Testament patriarch. No one is worthy to open the scroll. And John begins to weep and he begins to cry because why? Why is the scroll so important? Because in that scroll that the Father holds are all of his purposes of judgment and redemption. And if that scroll isn't opened, everything God has promised will fall to the ground. Nothing is brought to fulfillment. Nothing is completed. And then John is told by one of the elders, Stop crying. Look, the lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has been victorious so that he may open the scroll and its seven seals. Cry no longer, because there is a man who is also God. A lion who is also a lamb. He is worthy to open the scrolls. Everything God has ever promised. All of God's promises are yes in him. Every threat of judgment, promise of judgment. Every promise of forgiveness. Every promise of restoration will be fulfilled. Because there was one worthy to open the scroll. And one alone. And so God's purposes and promises proceed. And they are all completed exactly according to his own plan. In Isaiah chapter 54, we see some of the success of the servant's work, 
obedience and suffering in chapter 53. Now, I've just skipped from where we've been for two weeks, 48, to chapter 54. In 48, we were left with uh, uh, people, uh, there's no peace for the wicked, says the Lord. There's no rest for the weary is the way we've toned it down. But in Isaiah chapter 48, uh, those that do unrighteousness, those that haven't received God's promises, there's no rest for them. There's no peace for them. Now we've jumped up to chapter 54 and we're finding, we're finding some great measure of success. And that success is based on the servant's work, obedience, and suffering, particularly in chapter 53. I think most most believers are familiar with Isaiah chapter 53 because it is the great chapter in the, all of the Old Testament that talk about uh, the Messiah, the servant of the Lord, get laying down his life for his sheep. He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted that we would have life, that we were, would receive the forgiveness of sins. That's all of Isaiah chapter 53. Now, the result of that is this terrific success that explodes in chapter 54. If he doesn't accomplish his work in 53, if he's not obedient, if his suffering isn't satisfying, there is no explosion of praise in chapter 54. But the explosion of praise in chapter 54 should not be a surprise because we were already told in 53 he was going to meet with terrific success. If you will look at verses 4 and 5 and 10 through 12. So we're in Isaiah chapter 53 before we get to 54. And the reason why we're jumping, in case you don't know, the reason why we're jumping from chapter 48 to chapter 54 is because we've already done 49, 50, 51, 52, and 53. We did all those chapters more around uh, Palm Sunday and Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. I jumped ahead because those chapters are so suited uh, to that place in the religious calendar. Now we're jumping ahead to 54, but let's look back at 53. Chapter 53, verse 4, we're looking for a success of the servant. It reads like this. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Skip to verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And then this very important phrase, the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Because all the promises of God are yes in him. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many. And makes intercession for the transgressors. Let me pick out a few of the promises. He brought us peace by his chastisement. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong 
his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. That scroll with seven seals will prosper in his hand because of this servant. He will make many to be accounted righteous. He shall divide the spoil. Already in chapter 53, we see all these these aspects of him succeeding, of accomplishing exactly the Father's purposes of redemption. But now in chapter 54, it takes it up a notch. It goes even beyond uh, what we saw in 53 to see exactly how much success is enjoyed. But we're not there yet. Before I read chapter chapter 54, I need to tell you that I'm kind of disappointed. I've got a lot of resources, and I'm kind of disappointed how many of them uh, really didn't focus on the text in chapter 54. They were very anxious to interpret 54 and say what 54 wants you to think is this, but they really didn't deal with 54, what was actually said. I was a little disappointed by that. It looks... If I were to picture it, it looks something a a bit like this. Chapter 54 is on the table. Everybody's got a uh, copy of chapter 54. And what are we to think about this? And, And one person says, this is all about Israel. And another person says, I think it's all about the church. When I, when I read this explosion of praise, I think it's talking about the explosion of the church among All peoples, nations, tribes, and tongues, how the gospel is going out to all the world. But the other person's like, but isn't it about Israel? And then you've got uh, the one group saying, this is for, for them then. What I'm reading in 54, it's meant for them at that time. But the other side's like, no, it's for us now. And to complicate it further... Some are going to say, well, I think this is meant to be taken very literally. What I'm reading here, it's, it's less about image, and it's more conveying what actually happened. And then the other group's like, I think it's more allegorical. I think there are a lot of images there. I think we're not to be focused on the, the particulars as if they actually happen the way it's recorded. It's teaching through symbols something that we should get out of it. So what I definitely am going to do is... And this won't be till next week, really. But what I'm definitely going to do is I want to start with what did it mean to Israel? I think it means something well beyond Israel, but it's no less meant for Israel. To give you some idea, this is a good time to talk about concentric circles of interpretation and application, which may sound like a mouthful, but it's review. It's something we've already done in some, I don't know, probably a couple months ago. We talked about these concentric circles of interpretation and application. Whenever you read the Bible, how <coughs> excuse me, how are you understand the Bible? How how should you understand it? The smallest circle, the next larger circle, the larger circle after that. This is basic basic interpretation of understanding the Bible. It looks something like this. The inner circle, especially where we're at in Isaiah chapter 54, it means something to Israel and Jerusalem. Beyond that, I think you can say, well, what does this mean to the church? I mean, it certainly meant something to Israel and Jerusalem, but what does it mean now? After you've dealt with that, you ask, well, what does it mean to us as the church? The worldwide church. Our local expression of a church. 
If you're a Christian, what does it mean to you as a Christian within the church? What does Isaiah chapter 54 mean? And then what are the implications for all the world, every nation, all peoples everywhere? I don't consider it, for the most part, a good resource if when they read Isaiah chapter 54 and they immediately jump to the church. Because it starts with Israel. That's at the heart of this passage. Or if in reading Isaiah chapter 54 or any other portion of Scripture, they immediately jump to what does it mean for the world? It does mean something for the world, but it starts at the center. You start with the center and you work your way out. Because if you start at the outside, there's a pretty good chance you've already, you're already concluding some things that may not be supported by what it meant when Isaiah spoke it. Um, let me see where I'm at. That's okay. So what does it mean to Isaiah's generation? What does it mean to the future exiles returning from Babylon? And what does it mean for eschatological Israel? Eschatological means future Israel. Long time in the future Israel. What does it mean for Israel, uh, maybe well beyond my own lifetime? What does Isaiah chapter 54 mean for them? Uh, Isaiah's generation, they're not even in exile. But about 150 or plus years after Isaiah's generation, they will find themselves in Babylon. And Isaiah chapter 54 has a good word for those exiles returning from Babylon. But does it stop there? Does it also mean something for this this ultimate future Israel, the message in Isaiah chapter 54? Because Isaiah's prophecy, that is his vision, is unequaled in its prophetic scope, that is its range... It is difficult to know where the focus ought to be. What I mean by that is Isaiah, more than any other writer in all of the Bible, Old or New Testament, covers more of God's purposes of judgment and redemption than any other writer. Isaiah is speaking about 700 years before Jesus was ever born. So 2,700 years ago is, is when he starts commenting on things that people should expect. You're familiar with Isaiah commenting on being taken into Babylon, being returning from Babylon. Isaiah talks about, uh, Behold, the virgin shall conceive, and she shall bear forth a son, and his name will be called Emmanuel. He'll be the Prince of Peace, Everlasting God, Everlasting Father, Mighty God. That's all in Isaiah. So he prophesies the birth of Jesus, the birth of Christ. He also prophesies the death of Christ, Isaiah 53. He also prophesies beyond the death of Christ to his resurrection. He promises a new heaven and a new earth, which we haven't experienced yet. We still live on the old earth. So Isaiah prophesies, his, his scope of prophecy starts from 700 years before Jesus is ever born into the future. I don't know how far into the future he sees. It's at least until we have that new heaven and new earth. So it's hard to know in Isaiah, in all that he writes, what part of the plan is he talking about? That's what makes Isaiah 54 difficult to understand. Isaiah uses types and shadows. I've already told you, Cyrus, Isaiah isn't about Cyrus the Persian. Cyrus the Persian is only a bit player that's meant for you to appreciate a much greater player, Christ the Son, Jesus of Nazareth. 
And if you want some idea of how great he will be, look at Cyrus the Great, who did some wonderful things for Israel. But he's just the shadow of a greater person who does greater things that would be Christ. Isaiah's prophecy is not a neat chronology. Uh, Americans, Western thinkers, Western historians, we tend to write chronologically. Uh, If you take a history class, you would probably find it uh, disconcerting, unsettling, if, if they didn't work chronologically. If they talked about uh, the Vietnam War, and then they moved back to World War II, and then they talked about the Korean War, and then they moved up to the, the, the Gulf conflict, and then they moved back to World War I. It would be like, would you please put that in sequence? Like, you're not helping me understand world history if you're jumping and moving all around. But the way biblical writers often write, they don't write chronologically. And they've got moving pieces and parts And it's not just all neat, and this happened, and then the next thing that happened was this. That's just not the way they write. So it makes it difficult to understand the text. Isaiah also uses what is called a prophetic past tense or a prophetic present tense. A prophetic past tense is Isaiah prophesying something that's going to happen, but he says it as if it's already happened. If you read Isaiah chapter 53, he was stricken, he was smitten, he was afflicted for our offenses. That hasn't happened yet, but he's he's speaking of it as if it's already happened. Why do the prophets do that? Why do they talk about something that's going to happen, in Isaiah's case, 700 plus years into the future, he writes as if it's already happened? And at least one good reason why he does that is because it is so sure it's going to happen because God's word never falls to the ground. God can speak of things as if they've already happened because there's zero chance of it not happening. So he uses a prophetic past tense or a prophetic present tense. He's like in Isaiah 54, it's it's uh, this idea of singing and being joyful in this present experience. But that's not their real-life experience when he writes. That's not Israel's experience to this day. And in fact, all of creation is groaning, waiting for the day when God's sons are revealed. There's a certain sorrow in this world, but Isaiah 54 knows none of that sorrow. Isaiah 54 is celebrating something because it is so certain in God's purposes of salvation and deliverance. Not a neat chronology. Here's another way to look at it. These are slides I've shown you in the past as well, but it's been a while. Isaiah is called to ministry about 740 B.C. He is in Jerusalem. Isaiah prophesies about Assyria coming in. uh, It will destroy the northern ten tribes in 722. Assyria will come up against Jerusalem in 701, but the Lord will save them. Isaiah prophesies about Babylon taking Jerusalem into exile in 586. Isaiah prophesies about Cyrus the Persian coming in 538 and issuing a decree where the Israelites can return. All of that is prophesied in Isaiah. And it's not a neat order, but it's all there. But on another level, Isaiah also 
talks about Christ, a Messiah, a Savior, one who is greater than Cyrus, and he will come in A.D. 30. This Christ is also king. The spotlight is as king, he's also deity. He will consummate God's kingdom. So that there's a level of, just like there was an exile, there's a scattering of God's people. Just as there was a return from exile, there's, there is a return from God's people being scattered. And then Isaiah also prophesies regarding a future state, a new heaven and a new earth. All of that is in Isaiah. So if, if the world were to end right now, Isaiah's prophecy covers 2,700 years. And however long the world goes on, it will include that as well, because it will at least include a new heaven and a new earth. So it is hard to understand exactly where I, chapter 54 fits in all of this mix. It's a little bit difficult to understand. Let's, let me read it for you. Follow along. Isaiah chapter 54. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left. And your offspring will possess the nations and will people, and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Do not be confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you. But with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony, and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, and your gates of carbuncles, which is a bright red gem, I looked it up, And all your wall of precious stones, all your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established, and you shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy, 
No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their vindication from me declares the Lord. That's us. That is meant to be a great outburst of praise that follows the obedience and the suffering of the servant in chapter 53. But where on the chart is it meant to be plugged in? Or does it meant to be plugged in several places? It's a little bit of a taste of it here, but ultimately we're talking about a future new heaven and new earth. How exactly does 54 fit into Isaiah's big scheme of God's purposes of judgment and redemption? Let me give you um, some examples of how this is difficult. And I'm running out of time, but I think I can finish with these two examples. The first is John the Baptist. Uh, The story is told in several Gospels. I'm going to use the story that's in Matthew chapter 11. The verses will be on the screen, but you're welcome to find in your own Bible if you prefer to read it there. Uh, Matthew chapter 11. It's a pretty familiar story for those that know the Gospels where John the Baptist is in prison. So in in Matthew chapter 11, this is John the Baptist. Those are his feet. Uh, John the Baptist said, He who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. So John the Baptist is prophesied in Isaiah 2. He's the one that's going to announce the coming of the Lord. Isaiah is the one that announced the coming of Jesus of Nazareth. Behold the Lamb of God. Behold, Isaiah's words, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John the Baptist finds himself in prison. Jesus has been ministering. He's still early on in his ministry. But John the Baptist finds himself in prison. It reads like this. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ... He sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Now what most commentators say about John's question, I think is wrong. What most commentators get out of that story is that John is experiencing a crisis of faith. That John's faith is wavering. That John is struggling. I thought you were the Messiah, the behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And now John is wavering because he's in prison and his faith is on thin ice. The person who I think gets it right is a commentator. He died in 1936. He pastored a a Lutheran church in Ohio. His name is Richard Lenski. I've referred to him many, many times. Richard Lenski said, this isn't a crisis of faith. This is a question that is an expression of his faith. Because John the Baptist knows he's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But John the Baptist also knows that the axe is laid to the root of the tree. And John the Baptist also knows that I baptize you with water, but there's one coming after me that will baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. And it's purifying and it's judging. And John the Baptist in prison hears a lot about these great acts of grace. He hears nothing about acts of judgment. It is his faith in what God has revealed that arouses a question. Because I know my faith teaches me. I know what God has revealed. Messiah will bring forth judgment and salvation. All I hear is salvation. 
So based upon what God has said, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Jesus answers, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In a sense, John the ba- uh, Jesus tells John the Baptist what John the Baptist already knows, in a sense. But what you need to know is that Jesus just quoted from Isaiah chapter 29 and Isaiah chapter 35. So you're in Isaiah. I know you know where that book is. Turn to Isaiah 29 and 35. <clears throat> Isaiah 29 and 35. Chapter 29, verse 18, it reads like this. Isaiah 29, verse 18. This is Jesus' answer back to John. In that day, the deaf shall hear the words of a book. Well, that's what Jesus tells John. The deaf are hearing. Okay, secondly, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind shall see. That's exactly what Jesus tells John. The deaf are hearing, the blind are seeing. That's right out of Isaiah. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. That's what Jesus quotes John. But Jesus doesn't quote what follows immediately next in verse 20. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off. Who by a word make a man out to be an offender and lay a snare for him who reproves in the gate and with an empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. In other words, those are words of judgment. What Jesus quotes is these words of grace and mercy and kindness, but Jesus doesn't quote the immediate words after in Isaiah that speak of judgment and exposing sinners for who they are. But Jesus does say... Blessed is he who is not offended by me. All the purposes of God, both of judgment and of grace, will be fulfilled by Christ. But they will be fulfilled in his way, according to his timing, and not according to ours, and not according to John's. So, John, you're seeing me fulfill words of grace and mercy. Don't be offended by the fact that you're not seeing me fulfill God's promises of judgment and righteousness and holiness. They'll be fulfilled too. But in his time, not John's time. The same exact thing as what you'll find in in Isaiah chapter 35. If you look at the entire text, Jesus quotes the gracious parts. But in Isaiah chapter 35, he doesn't quote, Behold, your God will come with a vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Jesus doesn't quote that part because he didn't come to judge the first time. He didn't come to bring righteousness to rule and to reign the first time. He will the second. But the first time he came to deliver us from our greatest enemy. And that's not an enemy from without. That's an enemy from within. It's the sin of my own heart. The last example is an example that's found in Luke's Gospel chapter 4. Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth. This is very early on in his ministry. It's practically the way he starts. And and Jesus goes into the synagogue, and a scroll is handed him, the scroll of Isaiah. 
And Jesus starts reading from the scroll of Isaiah, and these are the words that he reads in his hometown. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Did Jesus bring good news to the poor? Yes, he did. He has sent me to to bind up the brokenhearted. Did Jesus bind up the brokenhearted? Yes, he did. He has sent me to, uh, to proclaim liberty to the captives. Yes, he did. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then it reads in Luke, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back. And the eyes of everyone, after reading that text, were fixated on him. And Jesus said, today these words have been fulfilled in your hearing. And it led through a little bit of additional teaching to them trying to kill Jesus. But it's very interesting, and I don't think it's by accident, where Jesus stopped reading in the scroll of Isaiah. In Isaiah, the words that follow to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, if Jesus had taken just one more half a breath... Jesus would have read, and the day of vengeance of our God. But he didn't read that in Nazareth. He didn't intend to read that in Nazareth. Because he wasn't coming to demonstrate God's vengeance on the unrepentant and the unbelieving. He was coming to demonstrate God's grace to the brokenhearted. He will fulfill all God's purposes of of judgment and redemption. But in his way, according to his timing, and it wasn't the first time, it will be the second time. What are your comments and questions? Jonathan. First thing, and that's a really long year. About 2,000 years long so far. Oh, the year of our Lord's favor? Yeah. Uh, yep, yep. That's true. That's totally... And that is so true. We live in the last days. We live in the days in which whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That is the year of the Lord's favor. That's exactly right. The scroll is sealed with seven seals. God isn't writing the scroll. He's not writing, oh, I saw what happened there. I'm going to have to write this part into the scroll. The scroll is sealed. It's already sealed. And everything in that scroll will be brought to fulfill fruition and fulfillment because the lamb and the lion, the servant of the Lord, will execute it down to its most minute degree. That's exactly right. It's, it's, and that is meant to give the church tremendous confidence and hope. We live in a scroll that has been written by our God that will be fulfilled exactly according to his purposes, which to his own people are purposes of goodness and grace. Somebody else? Joe. Well, I mean, stuff like this indicates the gap, right? At least in my mind. Uh, oh, oh, okay, the Old Testament, then I would say Daniel chapter 9 indicates the gaps. And I would say in Daniel chapter 9, you've got the, the 70 weeks prophecy. And you'll remember there's seven weeks and 62 weeks and one week. And Daniel divides up those weeks into seven weeks 62 weeks and one week. I think there are intentional built-in gaps the way he divides that. I, th- I mean, I realize this puts me in a pigeonhole, and I'm kind of okay with that. I think 69 of those weeks have been fulfilled. I think the last 70th week is still in the future. No, no. 
He, he knew what God's purposes were because God had... He didn't realize it wouldn't all happen at the same time. Yep, yep, yep. They focused... In fact, I mean, I actually changed it just this morning. I'd have to go way back in the slides. But back when I showed you a picture of Cyrus the Great was a short-term fulfillment, and then the long-term fulfillment, I had a cross and a crown. And until this morning, I just had a cross. And I thought, that's inadequate. Because the cross emphasizes his power over sin, death, and hell. But the crown emphasizes his power over the nations and the kingdoms of the earth. And both are true. We're still waiting for him to demonstrate his authority and power over, the, over all the kingdoms of the earth, unless you're Presbyterian, and then you believe the church is fulfilling that, which they could be right. They could be right. Uh, there's good reasons to believe that view. It's just not where I'm at. Uh, Carrie. Uh, off the top of my head, I'm, I'm a little hesitant to comment on it. I, I don't think it would be... It wasn't unusual for somebody who is kind of like... Now I'm totally speaking off the top of my head, which is probably a horrible thing. It's kind of like, if somebody wants to volunteer in church, you're not going to have to ask twice. Like, you know, if there's somebody that's willing to read a scroll in, a, in the synagogue on that Sabbath day, and Jesus seems willing to do it, and, and there's been some talk about what he's doing in some surrounding towns, he shows up in your synagogue, and you're like, if you want to read the scroll, that sounds great. I mean, you're kind of making a name for yourself. And so he's given the scroll. There's a synagogue service wasn't nearly as structured as a traditional American Western church service is. So uh, Paul in the New Testament in Acts, if he showed up a synagogue, it wouldn't be unusual, but they would say, brother, have you got a word for us? Like, you know, we've heard from Cliff like every... Every Sunday, like, if somebody's got something new to say, we're interested. So if Paul shows up, it's like, hey, like, get us off the hook. Uh, if you got something to say, and Paul said, in fact, I do have something to say, and then Paul begins to speak. So that, that's more customary in their culture than ours. So it wasn't unusual that he was given a scroll to read. He was willing to do it, and in fact, this is all fulfilling why he came. Yeah. Anybody else? Cindy. Prophetic present tense. Uh, well, I think the example would be chapter 54. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. So he's saying not, uh, not as if it's past, but in the present. Sing, O barren one. It's a present. Celebrate it now. I don't think we're living in that now. But it's spoken of presently prophetically, because it is so certain. And it follows on the heels of 53. Good question. Anybody else? So next week, we will actually be in chapter 54. It is, it is fascinating. Wow, is this good. Is this going to be good? I think. It's, it's going to be very much, I'm sitting at one of those corners of the table with the four, and you've got the four different perspectives looking at 54. I've got to pick one, one way to look at 54. I think, it's, I think it makes a lot of good sense. I could be wrong, but the, bigger, the big picture is you'll be, uh, the most important principles are timeless. I don't care what denominational stripe you are. 
God is faithful to his word. He will fulfill every promise he has ever made to his people. And we can count on that. That's meant to give us joy, hope, encouragement. But I'm going to be sitting at one of those corners of the table. I'm going to tell you what it means for Israel. It is crazy fascinating, I think. I've got another week to rethink my position. Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.